Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2018. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In a field of PhDs, Tim Samaras didn't attend a day of college in his life. He chased storms with brilliant tools of his own invention and pushed closer to the tornado than anyone else had ever dared. When he achieved what meteorologists had deemed impossible, it was as if he had snatched the fire of the gods. Yet, even as he transformed the field, Samaras kept on pushing. As his ambitions grew, so did the risks. And when he finally met his match in a face-off against the largest tornado ever recorded, it upended everything he not thought he knew. Bradley Har- Hargrove's uh, new book, The Man Who Caught the Storm, is the saga of the greatest tornado chaser who ever lived, a tale of obsession and daring, and an extraordinary account of humanity's high-stakes race to understand nature's fiercest phenomenon. Brantley Hargrove is a journalist. He's written for Wired, Popular Mechanics, Texas Monthly. He's gone inside the effort to reverse engineer super tornadoes using supercomputers. He's chased violent storms from the Great Plains down to the Texas coast. He lives in Dallas with his wife Renee and their two cats. The Man Who Caught the Storm is his first book. And Brantley Hargrove joins us for the hour. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. I wonder, uh, did you have your book with you? I do indeed. I'd like to have you uh, start with a with a gripping description of a tornado. This is from the prologue, uh, starting uh, the very bottom of page one when it finally appeared, and then over the page, and then including the two full paragraphs at the top of the page. Um, setting this up, this is a description of uh, what happened in Gerald, Texas. This is near where you grew up, I think. Uh, yeah, that's correct. My family and I lived uh, very close to Gerald. I actually had my first job there stocking shelves. And so in the end, you knew uh, some, I guess, uh, slightly some people who, who died there. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, at least in passing, uh, you know, a couple of a couple of twin boys. Uh, I don't think we overlapped while I was working there, but uh, I'm told I met them once. I don't. I honestly don't remember it, but uh, yeah. but yeah, that was, I guess that was my connection to it. Then to, to, one more thing to set this up. Uh, so the the fire alarm, the siren goes off at three thirty, and the uh, the tornado appears at three forty. That's somewhat typical. Not not a whole lot of lead time usually. Uh, yeah, it really it varies. Um, you know, sometimes you can get twenty minutes or so of uh, warning, and then and sometimes it's uh, it, you know can be almost nothing. It really, mm. it really depends. Well, let me. This is, uh, this is just gripping. Let me have you read this. When it finally appeared on the northern horizon at about 3.40 p.m., it was a sight townspeople would resummon in their dreams for years to come. Bristling with debris and blackened with rich soil scoured from the fields, it looked ancient and immutable, its sooty wings spread wide. What it looked like was the end of the world. The tornado was as wide as 13 football fields laid end to end. Little Gerald could have disappeared inside it swallowed and gone. The town that day was largely spared. The darkness passed to the west, away from the most densely populated parts of town. The trouble was, there were still people in its path, and more than usual on a Tuesday afternoon. School had let out for summer on the Friday before. Double Creek Estates, a collection of modest, single-story wood frame and brick starter homes, was huddled in the lowlands just northwest of downtown. Like most everywhere else in Texas, the houses didn't have basements. The water table was too high and the limestone bedrock too shallow. The 
with no choice but to shelter above ground, residents did as they had always been instructed. They sought out hallways, bathtubs, closets. They gathered their children into these spaces and listened to the wind, then the breaking glass, the groaning wood, and finally the raw sound of it, a deafening, toneless static, until the roofs and the walls surrounding them fell away. Uh, just uh, just amazing, the power. And you go on to write that uh, Double Creek Estates is, you know, after this tornado, it's, it's, it's gone. You, in fact, you you go and, and visit uh, shortly after, and it's, it's just totally gone. Yeah, uh, to this day, uh, Gerald constitutes probably some of the most extreme um, tornado damage uh, researchers I think I've ever seen. Uh, just, I mean, you know, not necessarily in breadth, but just in the depth of the destruction. Um, I mean, yeah, houses had been scoured down to their foundations. I mean, even the carpet, the linoleum, the plumbing, in some cases. I mean, you just, when you saw it from an aerial view, uh, it was just, just slabs of concrete with driveways that didn't lead to anything. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there have been places that even took the, the asphalt off the road. Um, so, yeah, my family and I, you know, a couple of weeks after, once the area was kind of opened and, you know, the recovery effort was, you know, as complete as it possibly could be, um, yeah, we drove out there and it was, uh, you know, I think I was 14, 15 at the time. And, uh, you know, it was, it was horrific and also just unbelievable. I mean, I just couldn't believe that, um, you know, that such things could happen, that tornadoes were capable of this kind of, this kind of unfathomable destruction. I wonder if you talk a little bit about what tornadoes can do. I was reading, I'm not, I'm not sure if this was uh, in Joplin. Of course, we all read about, uh, you know, there, there are some that uh, kind of poke through the national consciousness and others, uh, I guess, if you're living in that area, Joplin is one of those. At, at one point, I was reading uh, there was a, a truck wrapped around a tree. Right, yeah. That's called incredible phenomena. That's the actual scientific term for it. And you see that generally only in uh, EF5 tornadoes. Uh, yeah, I mean, crazy stuff like that. Trucks wrapped around trees. Uh, you know, you'll have houses uh, that get they get basically impaled by the same uh, two-by-six. Uh, you know, you'll have SUVs getting tossed for three-quarters of a mile, rail, rail cars that weigh, you know, dozens of tons uh, getting lofted. Um, it just it, The wind can do incredible things when it's, you know, approaching 300 miles per hour. Mm. Uh, cardboard impaled into... Uh, concrete. Yeah, I thought that was especially weird. Just kind of hard to imagine. Yeah. Uh, so just unimaginable if you're experiencing that. But by the way, in this uh, this Gerald uh, Texas tornado, I was interested to read the, the water table too high, right? Uh, you, you can't uh, dig down basements. But one family, the Hernandez family, had insisted on uh, digging at least a little shelter, and that's why they survived. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, it's, yeah. It, it, Basements, pretty common when you get up into the plains, uh, but just culturally and, and geographically, this, you just don't have that in Texas. I, you know, I've lived, lived in Texas for pretty much almost all my life, and uh, we never had a house with a basement. Um, so it's just not, it's not a common thing at all. Hmm. Um, and you're right, and I, I didn't know this, I guess assumptions we make, uh, the tornado... You know, uh, I guess still to this day, and uh, fairly recently, is one of the last true mysteries in the modern world. Scientists obviously have thrown all their expertise at it. It kills people every year, and so a lot of urgency here, but uh, a lot of mysteries still remaining. Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, 
Yeah, to be to be fair, it, it, we've come a hell of a long way. Um, in fact, it, it still shocks me uh, with the, you know to the degree to which we can specifically predict some of these events. You know, especially meteorologists and storm chasers too. They get they've gotten really good at pinpointing where these things could happen. But it's always a probability. Uh, you know, there's always you can you can really only state this could probably happen, but we don't know for sure. And we can't really know with any specificity what this tornado is going to exactly look like. How intense will it be? Uh, how long will it persist? How long will its path be? Uh, there are just still a bunch of fundamentally unanswered questions. Uh, and, you know, there, there's just still some, some, some facts about the tornado that we haven't nailed down. There's some mechanisms going on in the atmosphere that, uh, frankly, I'm not quite sure we even have the tools to see yet. Um, so there's the, you know, there, there, there are a ton of... Uh, a blank spaces in this equation, uh, but you know we're, we're still working at it for sure. Before we jump into the life of uh, Tim Samaras, uh, this is a fascinating life. Um, I want to have you talk briefly about uh, your storm chasing. You've, uh, I guess, to, to really dive into the life of Tim Samaras, you felt like, well, I've I've got to go out and and chase some storms. Right. Yeah. I mean, just as a, as a you know as a, as a journalist and a writer, you know, if you want to. Get inside, you know, your subject's head, uh, you know, and write competently about uh, this world that he was living in. You've you've got to go out and, and, and live in that world for a bit. So uh, yeah, that's what I did. Uh, you know, I, I needed to go walk a few miles in, in Tim's shoes. So in 2014, you know, pretty shortly after, um, you know, I, I started in earnest this book project. I got some of his buddies to uh, take me out storm chasing. These were guys who were part of uh, uh, TwistX, his, um, his research organization, and who'd known him for a very long time, had chased with him for many years. And uh, so we went out, you know, went out for, uh, you know, on three separate excursions, you know, each was about, about a week in length, and, uh, you know, really gave me uh, an appreciation for the vicissitudes of storm chasing. Um, I mean, it's often quite boring. You're driving literally thousands and thousands of miles, uh, just for the you know for the chance to see something you know you you don't you don't see a tornado unless you chase so it's you you know you just you, you go out after every single possibility that you can and uh, often I found that we would find these uh, gorgeous storms just these these beautiful sky sculptures these massive supercell thunderstorms that have these you know these striations and they're rotating and they're enormous uh, but they don't put down tornadoes. And, uh, you know, you just, you just can't really know unless you go and see them. Uh, and so, you know, I was, I was feeling a little dispirited. And I know Tim had felt some of that, that same frustration. Um, and it wasn't until my, my, you know, the very end, pretty much, of my third outing after, you know, another week on the road that, uh, you know, we finally, um, you know, we, we, were, we were holed up in this, this motel in uh, Grand Island, Nebraska, uh, for a day, because there was one day that we knew was going to be dead, um, but we knew the next day was going to be, you know, possibly very interesting. And sure enough, it was. And, you know, we just sort of noodled through the Nebraska farm country and, uh, you know, in, in no particular rush, because we had, you know, a pretty good idea where this event could take place. And uh, sure enough, we were set up on a rise um, overlooking this river valley in Nebraska when the first tornado touched down. Uh, and then that thing grew to be about 500 yards wide, and EF4 in strength, uh, you know, which means wind speeds up to 200 miles per hour. Uh, and then that one died, and then two more touched down, and those those were occurring simultaneously, which is an incredibly rare event. Uh, you know, two EF4 tornadoes within probably a mile of each other at the same time is, uh, 
you know, an incredible amount of energy for the sky to support. Um, and then, you know, there was one more after that. So it was, you know, four EF4 tornadoes in one day. It was, um, you know, it was, uh, it was exhausting and harrowing and just incredible. What's it like to be, to be, how close did you get? And what's it like to be close? We were probably at our closest half to three quarters of a mile away from them. Um, you know, I mean, we're, we're driving down this Nebraska road and we've got, you know, one giant tornado crossing the road in front of us, and then another is uh, coming up kind of kind of parallel to it and behind it. Uh, and, you know, I mean, we stepped out and, and, and watched these things. We stood in the uh, in the inflow of these tornadoes. Basically, it's the, this is this is the the, 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 the wind current that's feeding them. Uh, you know, 40, 50 mile per hour sustained wind. Um, so that was that was <laughs> overwhelming, and you know, just the, the the sound of it. I mean, you know, just it's this. This, this sort of uh, almost this waterfall sound is, is the best way I can describe it. But I mean, bigger than any waterfall you can imagine. And uh, and then, you know, and then once once they start going through trees and buildings, there's kind of this uh, low frequency roar that you hear. Um, so you know, I mean, these experiences, uh, in addition to being you know incredible things that I'll never forget, uh, I think also went to. Uh, me describing these events that Tim was, uh, you know, that Tim was experiencing as well. You know, I, I kind of had a pretty good idea what he was feeling and thinking and seeing because I had, you know, kind of experienced some of those same things myself. And if you watch, you know, there are documentaries and uh, Tim Samaras, who's one of the storm chasers on, uh, you know, Discovery's ongoing series, uh, um, it, you, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's adrenaline pumping, right? You, uh, you, Whatever your vehicle is, you're speeding down these small, you know, country lanes, either toward or away from the uh, tornado. Uh, what's what's the impulse? Do you think we'll get into? We'll take a break and come back and talk specifically about Tim Samaras. But in general, is it um, uh, part of its science? Right? You want to you want to learn more? Part of it's probably excitement for for a storm chaser. Well, sure. Um, and, and there's, I mean, there are really two distinct kinds of storm chasers. Like there's. You know, there are people like me. I mean, I was out here for a book, um, and really just, uh, you know, just for the experience. And Tim was out there for science. I mean, you know, clearly he enjoyed what he was doing. But, uh, I mean, he had a mission. He had a very specific mission. Um, and his mission required him to put himself in much more danger than I did, that's for sure. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll learn about Tim Samaras. Uh, the book is The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary T- uh, Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras. The author is Brantley Hargrove. More following this break. This is Science by the Slice. In 1960, as the Cold War heated up, the U.S. Army launched Project Iceworm. The top-secret effort was aimed at building a network of mobile nuclear launch sites under the Greenland Ice Sheet. Hampered by blizzards and unstable ice conditions, the project, located at Camp Century, was canceled in 1966. A 1.3-kilometer-long ice core was extracted from the site and, until recently, was largely forgotten. USU geoscientist Tammy Rittenauer is among experts tapped to analyze the unusual sample, which is providing clues about the Earth's warming climate. Rittenauer says data from the sample reveals the Greenland ice sheet may be more sensitive to climate change than previously thought. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu slash science. 
UPR is also supported by the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, presenting living history at the American West Heritage Center, featuring mountain men, pioneers, turn-of-the-century farmers, and a herd of bison. Activities include pony rides and tomahawk throwing. Information at explorelogan.com. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2018. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The book is The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras. The author is Brantley Hargrove, and he joins us uh, for the hour. Brantley Hargrove, uh, I want to just quote this. This is from a Q&A with your publisher. Uh, you said there's something about your own storm chasing. There is something addictive about being there as the atmospheric equivalent of a nuclear warhead is detonating. Um, and uh, you go on to say that your wife has decided that perhaps your storm chasing days are over. I don't know where that. I don't know where that's ended up. Uh, well, it's 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 we're sort of in an impasse right now. I think. <laughs> um, you know, I was actually going to go uh, storm chasing the other day, uh, yesterday, um, in Oklahoma. There was there was a decent chance for tornadoes, but I decided to sit it out. And it looks like it was probably the right choice. I don't think much happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you could, you, you could see your wife's point of view. It's, it is, it can be dangerous. Um, so what, uh, when did you first become aware of Tim Samaras? Uh, so probably, you know, I, had been aware of Discovery Channel storm chasers. I'd seen, I'd seen them on there, um, you know, an episode or two here and there, but, um, yeah, I don't think I was terribly aware of, uh, the details of this mission. Um, and it wasn't really until El Reno, um, 2013, uh, that, you know, that I really started thinking hard about this guy and who he was. I mean, the, May 2013 was just one of those months that, um, you know, if you're living in the Southern Plains like I do, uh, you can't help but take notice. Um, you know, May 20th, uh, 2013, Moore, Oklahoma, uh, an EF5 tornado that killed, I think, 24 people. Um, it was, you know, I mean, just this insanely destructive tornado that just carved a swath right through the middle of Moore. Um, and, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was, you know, as somebody who is weather aware like I am, uh, you know, pretty horrifying to watch, um, you know, because I follow a lot of chaser accounts. And so I was, in many cases, seeing um, live video of what was going on. Uh, and then so 11 days later, uh, El Reno, May 31st, 2013. You know, once again, Oklahoma is under the gun. It's like, my God, really? I mean, it's as if they haven't been through enough. And so, you know, as I am sort of following this event uh, and seeing, you know, some images coming out of there, it's, uh, I mean, frankly, unbelievable. You know, just this monster. And, I, and you know, I, at the time, I didn't even know the half of it. You know, once the damage survey was completed, they had sort of mapped out, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, the, the path of these winds and, and, and their breadth. Uh, you know, 2.6 miles in width, the, the widest tornado ever ever observed on Earth that we know of. Um, and then several days later, you know, news started leaking out that uh, Tim Samaras, uh, his son Paul, and his longtime chase buddy, a meteorologist Carl Young, that, you know, they'd all perished. And these were apparently, and unbelievably actually, uh, the first tornado chasers who'd ever been, ever been killed by a tornado. I mean, it's kind of hard to see how that would be true, but you know, I think storm chasing is, isn't quite as dangerous as, 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 you know, as it's often made out to be. Um, but they had perished, and so I wanted to, I wanted to learn more about these guys, just as a, as a, a journalist. I mean, this just this seemed like a, a 
fascinating story, and these guys seemed like interesting people. And um, I felt this urge to find out why they needed to be so close and, and, and what exactly they were uh, trying to accomplish uh, by you know, trying to intercept this tornado. We'll wrap back around to uh, El Reno later in the program. Um, and there are some factors. We'll talk about that later as to as to uh, why uh, these three experienced storm chasers uh, uh, perhaps maybe didn't even see this one coming. Um, what uh, what made Tim Samaras so interested in tornadoes and, and storm chasing? Well, probably you can trace that back to his, uh, his childhood. Uh, I mean, when, from when he was six years old, actually. Uh, you know, he, he saw The Wizard of Oz, which, you know, I think Wizard of Oz was kind of one of those movies that sort of awed a lot of us, you know, even if we, if, even if we weren't born that long ago. Um, you know, the first time he saw that, that tornado roping over the fields toward Dorothy and Toto, he was, uh, I mean, he was transfixed. He was hooked. Uh, and, and, and that feeling never really went away. Um, you know, as he, as he, as he grew older, he, he remained interested in storms. I mean, he was, you know, he was one of those kind of Ben Franklin type kids. He was always conducting little experiments in his bedroom. You know, when storms were, were coming through, he'd, he'd run a wire out to a, you know, to a light bulb and, and, and hook that, that wire out to a telephone pole and see if he could conduct some of that ambient electrical charge to the light bulb. Uh, you know, as he got older, he would, he would drive his car out to Red Rocks there in Colorado where he lived. Uh, you know, just to watch the storms wash over him. Uh, and for a while, you know, this, this, this fascination with storms kind of su- had to subside a little bit because he got a, you know, he got a job and started raising a family. And, but, you know, eventually it kind of came back and he started chasing a little bit, uh, you know, very, very slowly kind of wading into this world, you know, taking some, some basic storm spotting and meteorology courses just so he could kind of, you know, figure them out a little bit, you know, not just go out into the, uh, out onto the plains completely unarmed and ignorant. Hmm. He lived in uh, Denver, Colorado area, right? The western edge of Tornado Alley. Yeah, yeah, Lakewood, Colorado, you know, a little suburb of Denver. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's basically at the, at the doorstep of Tornado Alley. It's, uh, you know, Colorado doesn't get terribly intense tornadoes, but they do happen. Uh, and so, in in some ways, it was kind of a good training ground for him, hmm. uh, and it you know it led him to going further and further out onto the plains where you find uh, the real beasts. He had a particular set of skills which really aided him. Uh, maybe tell tell us about that. <laughs> like Liam Neeson and Taken, he has a, a yeah, very particular, that's, that's set right. particular set of skills. Particular set of skills. Uh, yeah. So he Tim had a very very odd skill set though. Uh, he was uh, a research. He was working at a research and defense contractor. Is basically, I, mean, I really don't know any other way to put it than he was an explosives expert. Uh, uh, this 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 firm he worked for, uh, the Denver Research Institute and later Applied Research Associates, they did a lot of uh, explosives testing for the military, uh, and so they would get sent batches of Patriot missiles, and I mean they would do, also do so just some uh, you know basic research type stuff for the Defense Nuclear Agency. Uh, where they would explode huge amounts of ammonium nitrate, um, basically as, as a nuclear simulation. And Tim's Tim's job, and you know the rest of his firm's uh, job, was to use high-speed electronics, you know, really, really expensive research-grade cameras and electronics to document really uh, millisecond by millisecond these explosions. Uh, so, for example, this, you know, this this. 4,000 some odd uh, ton nuclear test, uh, which, you know, where they used ammonium nitrate. He had that site ringed with uh, 
ultra-high-speed cameras, where he would use those to document, uh, you know, just, just in, in extremely granular detail, these explosions. And so Tim, he, he had a, a real knack for using uh, these electronics to uh, understand extremely violent events that you don't want to be anywhere near. Uh, and as it turned out, Tim had an expertise there that would be extremely useful for tornadoes. Um, so, uh, uh, how so? Maybe uh, explain that, and uh, and maybe we could get into that from their uh, explanation of how tornadoes form and what uh, and, and what we're trying to find out about them. At least what uh, Tim Samaras was trying to find out about them. Yeah, yeah. So one of the big um, one of the big blank spaces, you know, one of the big sort of terra incognita of tornadoes uh, was was the uh, the ground level. Um, you know. Inside the uh, you know inside the core, right there where we live, where we get killed, where our houses get shredded apart. Uh, I mean, as, as crazy as it is to to say, you know, at the turn of the of, of the twenty first century, when Tim's kind of coming on the scene here, we had absolutely no data from that area. I mean, nobody had ever gotten data from ground level at the core of a violent tornado, and that was not for lack of trying. Uh, it's just simply a really dangerous and difficult thing to do. It's hard to find tornadoes. It's harder still to get in front of them and then to deploy some sort of instrument package that the tornado is then going to run over. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's insanely hard to do. And so Tim kind of stepped into this arena and was like, well, you know what, I can do this. Uh, he, he, he heard that uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration was looking for somebody to build a tornado probe that could gather data uh, from the heart of a tornado. And, and, and to Tim, this was like, oh, my gosh, this is my, this is my dream project. This is basically what I was per- put on this earth to do. Uh, and so he started designing this probe uh, that was, you know, very Tim in every possible way. Uh, it was inspired by a, a previous project that uh, the Applied Research Associates had undertaken, and it never got past phase one. It was never actually built, but it was a, an intercontinental ballistic missile launch vehicle that was designed to withstand a nuclear shock wave. And so what Tim did was he took those, those blueprints and scaled it down to something that was about the size of a car tire, uh, about you know, 20 inches across, about six inches tall. It looks like it was kind of conical, kind of looks like a cone, but really squat. Uh, and what it, what it could do, you know, the, the beauty of it, and you know, what no other tornado probe to that point uh, could boast was this, this was this profile that could resist um, extreme drag and lift forces, which is exactly what you're going to face in a tornado. And so Tim builds this thing. It's called the Hardened In Situ Tornado Pressure Recorder, uh, and it had pressure sensors, humidity t- uh, sensors, and temperature sensors. And he built this thing, and his goal then was to take it out there and to get the data that really a lot of atmospheric scientists had figured at that point was probably impossible to get. Uh, we, if you just joined us, we're talking with Brantley Hargrove. Uh, his very interesting uh, book, uh, "The Man Who Caught the Storm: The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras." If you'd like to join the conversation, you can. You can email us to upraccess at gmail dot com. Upraccess at uh, gmail dot com. Uh, so tell us about you were saying uh, is very very hard, even if you have the the right. Uh, the right instrument, which he which he invented, uh, you have to, I guess, predict where the tornado is going to go. R- r- zoom in there, uh, 
place it and then hope that the heart of the tornado goes over the top of it. Uh, so finally, Tim Samaras had success. He broke through, right? The Holy Grail, Manchester, South Dakota, 2003. Right. Yeah. I mean, and this is after this is after several years of 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 busts and very very near misses. Uh, so it, it isn't that you know Tim just stepped in there and uh, and had his great success without hardship. He he very much got a taste of what all the other researchers who had preceded him uh, had faced out there. But yeah, on, in, in June 2003, uh, Tim came up against uh, what to that point was, I believe, the largest and most violent tornado he had ever encountered. Uh, and so, I mean, it was, it was harrowing, uh, you know, a harrowing ordeal. Uh, so, you know, he, he, had, he was coming, coming down this uh, South Dakota highway, and, and off to his right is just this, this plains type. I mean, you know, high end, the kind of tornado you maybe see once in your lifetime if you're a storm chaser. Uh, winds, uh, you know, in excess of 200 miles per hour. And, you know, it's, it's very close to the South Dakota road. And he realizes, you know, which would be his preference uh, to deploy on this highway because, you know, it, it, it's firm. You know the footing is good. You know you're not going to lose traction. You can get out of the way real quick. But the tornado is way too close to the highway. So what Tim had to do after, you know, he thought about it for a minute, was he realized that there was a pretty good grid of dirt roads uh, off to the north, which was, you know, vaguely the direction the tornado was heading. It was kind of going off to the northeast. So what he did was he got on a, a northbound dirt road, uh, and he knew that he would have to take the next eastbound dirt road uh, and cut the tornado off, drop his probe, and then... Uh, flee to you know flee on the next northbound road and hope that the tornado continued to the northeast and would miss him. Uh, so essentially, he was he was entering a race that uh, he could not afford to lose because losing might meant getting killed. Uh, and sure enough, he he races this thing, uh, gets to this intersection, jumps out of his car, uh, drops the probe, uh, flings himself back into the minivan, and tears off with uh, this tornado at his heels. And he didn't know it at the time. But that tornado uh, ran over his probe and got the first data of its kind. What did we learn from that success? Well, we got, for the first time ever, uh, pressure measurements from the core of violent tornadoes. So we could actually see exactly how far the pressure uh, fell, and it set a, it set a Guinness uh, World Record uh, for a pressure fall. Uh, we now had uh, humidity and temperature uh, measurements from inside the core of a violent tornado. So now engineers had actual, you know, pretty good, uh, you know, pretty precise wind speeds uh, to build off of. To that point, you know, we were always just guessing. Uh, you know, we, we, would, we would base our guesses on, on estimates of, of damage to buildings. You know, kind of generally, what wind do you think it might take to bring this building down? It's, it's inexact, and it's, it's, it's sort of a lower bound. So now we had, now, now we had precise... Uh, a precise measurement uh, off of which to build uh, buildings, you know, homes. Uh, so that was that was a pretty big coup for engineers. Uh, for you know, vortex modelers, these these scientists who use computers to uh, create these you know these these numerical tornadoes on screen to you know understand their structure. Well, now they had that, that. Now they could fill in that place that they'd really just been guessing at the lowest level of tornado. And Tim's Tim's data is still uh, uh, in use to this day. Um, so you know, it was it was a big it was a big coup for atmospheric science. I mean, it didn't solve the puzzle uh, by any stretch, but it was a it was a huge first step, and it showed that um, you know that this could be done. 
What are some of the key questions remaining uh, that scientists are are, uh, are still trying to, to puzzle out about tornadoes? Oh gosh, there there are a bunch. Um, there are, I mean, there are still those mechanisms in the sky uh, preceding, you know, the biggest, most violent tornadoes. You know, the kind that go down in history that we can't really see. I mean, there, there, we just we we can't we still don't have the ability to predict those with specificity. So, I mean, we just need to know a whole lot more about tornadoes. Um, and, I mean, we're working towards that. There's some really, really interesting research initiatives that are using supercomputers uh, to understand these events. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we just need more data. I mean, really, that's, 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 that's the long and short of it. We need a lot more data um, from ground level, from the core, uh, you know, with radar, uh, you know, scanning the entire tornado. Uh, but, you know, there, there, there's still just, you know, some, some basic, un, basic unanswered questions. You know, what's the difference between uh, the storm that produces, uh, you know, the pretty strong tornado that you need to watch out for and the storm that produces those historic tornadoes? We still don't know. Um, you know we, st- we still don't know how to predict with specificity, uh, you know, where the tornado is going to hit. So, I mean, just, there, there's still a lot we need to do. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, Tim Samaras, the man. This is, uh, of course, alongside the science is a human story. And uh, maybe starting point in the next segment, uh, the fact that Tim Samaras was an outsider, right? And you write that he has a chip on his shoulder. Uh, This is a a field full of PhDs, and he didn't go to college. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about that and the the man himself and, uh, and his family. Um, we'll have uh, more with uh, Brantley Hargrove following a break. The book is The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of a Legendary Tornado Chaser, Tim Samaras. Utah Public Radio programming is supported in part by our members and Silicon Slopes Magazine, a hub of Utah startups, business, and tech, contributing articles and insights from the Utah community. Information on advertising in print and digital versions at siliconslopesmagazine.com. Support also comes from Utah State Historical Society, presenting their annual conference, Public Health and the Common Good. Virtual presentations begin September 20th. Details at history.utah.gov. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA, Loud, the history of reggaeton. A new podcast takes you from the Panamanian buses to the shores of Puerto Rico to the streets of New York City. We used to record a lot, and he used to sell the cassettes to the bus drivers. It all went down on the buses. That's next time on Latino USA. Tomorrow morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Mayan Burrell was 16 when police said he shot a girl. I believe that they were very conscious to the fact that they had the wrong person that was incarcerated, and they just didn't feel like my life was worth living. He got a life sentence. The first thing people kept telling me when I started talking about the case was, you know they don't let people out. A case that seemed hopeless. On the next Reveal. Monday at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2018. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and my guest for the hour is Brantley Hargrove. We're talking about his new book, fascinating book, The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras. So, Brantley Hargrove, um, I want to have you talk a little bit about uh, Tim Samaras's status as an outsider. He 
apparently distrusted the PhDs. Uh, the, predictably, the scientific side of storm chasing storm science is led by a bunch of PhDs. He didn't go to college. He's jumping into this field, and he insists on operating outside the academy. Yeah, Tim was uh, Tim was definitely an oddball in this field. Uh, yeah, as you said, he didn't go to high school. I mean, Tim really just never liked going to school. Period. Uh, so you know, he graduated from Alameda High School, got his diploma, and was uh, after that he was he was done. Uh, he didn't want to go to college. Uh, he figured that he could teach himself uh, whatever he needed to know. So you know, right out of, right out of high school, you know, he's, you know, maybe a couple of years. I think he's twenty years old by the time he starts working. Uh, for uh, DRI, you know, gets his Pentagon security clearance. You know, he can't even go out to a bar and drink yet. So, you know, naturally, I think Tim, and, and not unfoundedly so, had a, a pretty strong ability in his skills and what he could do. And I think he also, you know, as he was as he was looking for this Manchester Intercept, as he was, you know, attempting to do what he had been told was impossible, he he'd, he was on the receiving end of a lot of skepticism. Um, there were a lot of scientists out there who. When they heard about what Tim was trying to do, I, I think they kind of rolled their eyes. Um, because this is, I mean, you know, what he was trying to do was something that, you know, these guys with PhDs had been trying to do for a lot of years. You know, I mean, through the 80s, there was this, uh, there was this attempt to uh, get data from the core of violent tornadoes. I mean, this was with the National Severe Storms Laboratory and uh, University of Oklahoma. I mean, just really brilliant guys out there and not having any luck whatsoever. And then again in the 90s, you know, this, this big federally funded multi-million dollar moonshot effort to understand tornadoes. Uh, you know, this, uh, this, this researcher gets his probe uh, to within hundreds of yards of a violent tornado, you know, but no cigar. You know, it's not a core intercept, but it's really close. And so you have, you know, this, this, this long line of uh, extremely brilliant humans uh, who couldn't do it, and then here comes this guy, uh, you know, out of nowhere, unaffiliated with any uh, university or research institution. Institution. He's like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I can do this. And everybody's like, I mean, who is this guy? You know, what is, who does he think he is? And so I think, Tim, you know, I think he'd kind of taken some of that to heart. I think it, it put maybe a slight chip on his shoulder. Um, because he got these pointy eggheads um, telling him he can't do something, and then he shows them all wrong. And so I think there are some lessons that he learned there. Um, that sort of stuck with him, uh, and, and there again, you know, before before Manchester, he had he'd signed on to this this big research expedition that you know they were going to pay for him to go out storm chasing, but he was going to have to he was going to have to take orders while he was out there chasing from these you know these meteorologists with PhDs who were making calls from their computers, uh, you know, back in Colorado, and you know that season they didn't see any tornadoes, and it was an experience, another experience that stuck with him. That you know, there again, he's you know he's out there with this uh, you know this big expedition um, being run by these you know really brilliant PhD atmospheric scientists, and he didn't have any luck. So that lesson stuck with him. He's like, all right, well, in addition, I need to be uh, incredibly independent to do what I did. I mean, you know, look at Manchester. I didn't have anybody telling me what to do out there. I was I was on my own. I was following my own instincts and my own skills, and they didn't serve me wrong. And so these lessons, they, they persisted, you know, throughout his life. Uh, you know, again, whenever he was uh, enlisted to, to join this, you know, the, the next big federally funded tornado moonshot uh, expedition, um, you know, Tim turned it down. He didn't, he, didn't want to, he didn't want to take part in it because that would mean, uh, that would mean foregoing 
his own his own skills. That would mean taking orders on the chase, and it was something he wasn't willing to do. Uh, and for better for better or worse, uh, you know that th- those lessons kind of haunted him for the rest of his days. Oh, uh, how so? Well, you know, first of all, Tim. I mean, as I said, he wasn't he wasn't a PhD, and so he didn't have he didn't have the the, uh, the academic background to do the, to do the hard work of science. Take the raw data that he gathered out in the field, and then to to, to draw scientific conclusions from that. And I think Tim realized that you know he he did have a weakness there, and so that's why. He partnered up with Bruce Lee and Kathy Finley, two PhD scientists uh, who could make sense of his data, but would also, uh, you know, wouldn't tie him down, would give him the freedom to go intercept tornadoes as he saw fit. Uh, but it also made what he did more dangerous. Um, so, you know, when, when Tim is out there uh, intercepting tornadoes, he's going on his gut. Uh, he's going uh, based on what his eyes can see, what his experience tells him, and uh, what, you know, just conventional uh, stationary uh, National Weather Service radar has to show him. And so National Weather Service radar, you know, these big stationary Doppler radars, they're scanning vast amounts of real estate. Uh, you know, they, they update once every five minutes. And so Tim is, you know, in, in addition to his eyes, he's going on these radar updates uh, that, are, that are usually five minutes old. Uh, and and that's, 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 it's not terribly helpful if you are uh, trying to intercept a tornado you can't see very well. So it was, you know, it added a, a degree of danger to what he was trying to do that, say, if he had been out there with Josh Werman, uh, the uh, Center for Severe Weather Research, uh, you know, he was out there with um, these mobile Doppler radars that were scanning the storms, you know, once every several seconds. Uh, so you, you have a, lo- you, a lot better sort of real-time intel on what's going on with the sky, uh, if 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 Tim had partnered with a guy like Joshua Warman, but he didn't have that. By the way, what uh, what his wife think? She uh, he's out there, I think, fairly routinely with uh, not only um, you know colleagues, but with his son, who's who's taking video. Well, you know, I mean, first, whenever. You know, Tim was just going storm chasing. She was like, okay, well, this is just something he enjoys. And then once it became something more serious um, and, you know, it required to get him to get a lot closer to uh, tornadoes, you know, I think here and there she saw a snippet of video where it seemed like he got really close. And she'd be like, Tim, it, you know, it seems like you're, you're getting awfully close. Is this safe? And Tim would assure her that it was. And, I mean, you know, there wasn't really a whole lot of reason at that point to assume that it wasn't safe, at least, you know, relatively so. Uh, you know, got, we've got to remember, to this point, no storm chaser had ever been killed by a tornado. So this wasn't really something that was at top of mind. But, uh, you know, Tim was assur- assuring her that he was being safe. And then once once uh, Paul, uh, you know, his son started chasing with him, you know, Paul was probably in his late teens when he started chasing with Tim. Uh, you know, uh, I think Kathy warned him once again, hey, like, hey, look, you've got to, if Tim is if Tim is in the, if Paul is in the car with you, you have to be extra careful. Um, you know, you can't, you can't take those risks. You know, this is, this is the only son I have. Um, and so, you know, for the most part, Paul was, Paul wasn't in the car with Tim. Uh, you know, you know, through through a lot of the early times, uh, Paul would be riding in one of the Mesonet vehicles, and they're keeping they're keeping a little more distance from the tornadoes. Uh, and then once, uh, you know, Tim signed up with the Discovery Channel. 
uh, you know, Paul often wasn't in the car then, too, because, you know, you have, you know, maybe Carl in there, maybe one other guy, and then you have a camera guy in there. So there, there really wasn't room for Paul. So really, for a lot of, you know, sort of the early years, Paul isn't, he isn't, he isn't, you know, he isn't in in the teeth of the tornado. But, um, you know, Cassie definitely, you know, she she was she was a little concerned, and you know, it, it, and not without reason. I mean, there were a, a, a couple intercepts, one of which, uh, you know, I, I, I've seen video of where you know they they are pushing it really close, where they deploy a probe, and literally 15 seconds later, that probe gets run over by a tornado. Mm-hmm. Um, so they pushed it pretty close. I mean, it wasn't a strong tornado, but uh, you know, Kathy's. Her worries weren't unfounded. So, uh, tell me a bit more about El Reno. This is um, end of May, twenty thirteen, l- uh, largest tornado uh, I think ever recorded. Um, a, a bunch of storm chasers out there, I, I assume, including uh, Tim and and his uh, team. What what was different about this one? What uh, what were the problems uh, to why this ultimately proved fatal for for Tim and the two others? Uh, this. This this storm chase was a train wreck from the beginning. Um, so, you know, they they I mean, they were on they were on this uh, this tornado from the moment it was born, and they they followed it, and it started just doing a bunch of weird things, things that they hadn't really seen tornadoes do. So, you know, normally whenever Tim and Carl are going to intercept a tornado. They'll, they'll sort of stay to the north of it, which is, is, is not a great place to be, um, because tornadoes do often kind of go in a northerly direction. But that was what they had to do to deploy a probe. So they would stay to the north of it, uh, kind of try to get ahead of it, uh, you know, drop down a little bit south if need be, and deploy their probe and get out of the way. Uh, and that just was not working with this tornado. Uh, this tornado was going, uh, you know, at first it was going almost due south, and then kind of switching south southeast or lead to southeast so i mean you know is is they're trying to intercept this probe well they're saying oh it keeps it keeps going further and further out of range and they're like what the heck's going on so they they dive south after it uh and and that's when the first misstep happens um their plan was to go a little bit south and then take the next east option uh you know an east option which would wouldn't take them too close to the tornado, but close enough to keep it within range. And so as they're going south, uh, well, they realize that their next east option actually dead ends in a, in a little regional airport. And so they're like, well, hell, we're either going to have to turn around or we're going to have to keep going. If we turn around, we're probably going to lose this thing. So they decide to keep going. And they go much closer to the tornado than they would have liked. And, uh, they, you know, they hit their next east route. And before too long, they realize... Uh, or at least I think they realize that they've they've penetrated um, you know sort of the periphery of the tornado and have actually uh, entered a, a part of the debris core. So actually, uh, during this time as they're traveling east, they get hit by a piece of debris. You know, bounces off the cobalt. And Tim, uh, to his credit, immediately realizes that this is uh, very bad and that they need to take the next north route uh, as soon as they get to it. Uh, so that's what they do. So that's the first. That's kind of the first misstep is that, uh, you know, they, 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 they pierce this tornado uh, and, and this requires them to go north. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's another mile or so out of the way. It's, it's, it's more progress lost to the tornado. They're losing ground to it. So they're, they're heading north, uh, you know, trying to get out of this thing. Uh, then they take their next east route 
and uh, you know, it, it, it's it's the tornado is 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 starting to switch uh, in direction. It's starting to go kind of more more southeasterly to easterly now, and it's uh, it's picking up speed. So you know, right off the bat, things aren't going well. And um, it, this this tornado is rain wrapped as well, right? It's uh, it's visibility is is very uh, difficult, and that makes it especially dangerous. Yeah, well, you know, right around the time they're turning north, um, uh, th- that's about the point where the uh, the subvortex forms this faithful this fateful subvortex, which is which is basically it's a tornado within a tornado. You know, some tornadoes are are, are multiple vortex tornadoes. They will. They're not necessarily just one big cone like you see in Twister. They are, they're sort of a, a broader circulation filled with smaller tornadoes. And this was kind of a hybrid in some ways. And so right around the time they turn north, the subvortex forms. And then this big slug of rain uh, starts wrapping around the tornado from the outer storm. It gets pulled from the, from the storm down into the periphery of this tornado. And so if you're to the north of the tornado, as Tim, Paul, and Carl were, uh, well, now you're not seeing anything. Uh, now you are essentially blind to the tornado. And so as they take their next east option, uh, you know, they're, 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 from here on out, they're pursuing a tornado they can't see. And so they're trying to gain on this thing uh, to no avail. This tornado's picking up steam. It's going uh, 30 miles per hour, uh, probably 40 at least. Uh, and so by the time they get to, you know, the, the, you know, the first highway they've seen in a long time, you know, for a while they have just been on dirt roads. Uh, and you can't go real fast on dirt roads. Uh, and so they get to this highway, and, 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 and they have a decision to make. Um, you know, they can, they can head to the north uh, and, and get on some solid footing. Get on, there's a highway to the north. and get on that highway and try to, try to you know, gain some, gain some speed, gain, some, gain on this tornado that they have not been able to outpace. When they look to the south, they realize they can't go to the south because that's where the tornado is, and now it's enormous. By the time they hit uh, this highway, that tornado is probably about two miles in width, and it's moving. I mean, it's going 40, 50 miles per hour. And so they, they clearly can't go south. Uh, they're worried that if they go north, they're going to lose this thing. So they decide to continue on down this dirt road, pick it up on the other side of the highway, and uh, see if they can see if they can outrun this thing. See if they can get ahead of it. And uh, right around this time, as, as the tornado is crossing the highway, uh, it kicks on the afterburners. It starts going highway speed, sixty miles per hour at least, uh, and it starts to swell in size. It's, it's you know it's 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 well over two miles in width, and uh, it's, it's 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 winds are picking up. It's it's becoming extremely violent. And as it's, as, as it's crossing the highway, it starts to initiate a, uh, a sort of northeast turn and then more gradually north. So it is hooking towards Tim, Carl, and Paul. Uh, this, this tornado that they can't see is, is starting to close in on them. Hmm. We just have a couple of minutes left. We'll have to send people to the book. Uh, <laughs> uh, just pulse pounding uh, there. And in the end, uh, boy, they were... They were pretty close to safety, but didn't quite make it. Um, I wonder, just in the just about a minute left, um, what to, you know, having spent this time uh, researching the the life of Tim Samaras and uh, tornadoes and uh, tornado chasing and the science, uh, what's what's your biggest takeaway? Well, my, uh, the, my biggest takeaway and the thing I think that shocked me, uh, being you know somebody who didn't really 
know a whole lot about tornadoes beforehand was just how little we know. I mean, that, that was one of the crazy things to me, was that there were all these fundamental unanswered questions out there, that there were still mysteries to be had in the natural world, and that, uh, you know, we still, we still struggle to, to nail these, these events down. I mean, I think, I think that was one of the coolest things to me. I mean, it's, it's kind of scary, but it's also, it's also fascinating to know that, you know, our, our dominion over the natural world isn't complete, that there are still things out there that we don't understand. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think that just sort of increased a sense of awe in me. And, uh, you know, it gave me an appreciation for what Tim was trying to do as a person who is, who has lived near these, these, you know, just these, you know, the most violent tornadoes imaginable that it killed people. Uh, you know, I, I appreciated what he was trying to do. I mean, in some sense, I kind of thought, uh, you know, Tim Samaras was a hero. Well, we have uh, run out of time here. Brantley Hargrove, uh, his uh, new book is a fascinating book, The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras. And uh, you can uh, find out more at uh, hbrantleyhargrove.com. You can also uh, Google the book, uh, The Man Who uh, Caught the Storm. And uh, Brantley Hargrove, it's uh, been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me on. appreciate it. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.